It would help if I turned the mics on. <laughs> Is that better? Holy cow. Yeah, that's, that's better. Okay. Is that too loud or is that okay? All right. Sorry, guys. I'm, we had a funeral this afternoon, and I got done with the funeral about 4.30, and then I had to go home and eat, and then I had to turn around and come back. So it's kind of crazy, and it's hot out there today, too. So, You guys ready to start? Everybody get a sheet of paper from the back. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather again. Lord, we're so thankful that you have saved us by your amazing grace, and you've created us to worship you. You've created us to walk with you, and that's what we want to learn to do tonight, to worship you more deeply and to walk with you more intimately. And so, Jesus, we know that you tell us the way we love you is by obeying your commandments. So help us to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit as we learn tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's back up. Since we've got some, some newer people, different, different um, things we need to talk about. The, the whole gist of this class is obeying Jesus. And we started out with the first night saying that the way that we show Jesus that we love him is by obeying his commandments. And so we're looking at what Jesus commanded while he was on earth, specifically in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last week, if you remember, the, the first thing we said was Jesus came as a preacher with authority, and his message was repent and believe the gospel. And then we started out with the Sermon on the Mount. And so we are in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So turn to Matthew 5. And we only got through the first two, I think. Um, we're going to try to finish them tonight. And I know it probably think, man, that's a lot to cover. And it may be, but we'll try our best. One of the things I want to reiterate is that Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount to believers, those who are already in the kingdom. These are not things that you have to do in order to become a Christian. These are things that you display once you are a Christian because the Holy Spirit lives in you and he gives you the power to demonstrate these things. Um, would one of you guys be willing to close the doors back there? Um, thank you. So let's just start with Matthew 4.17. Okay, I want to just reiterate what Jesus sets this up with. Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we spent a long time last week talking about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And, and how do you get into the kingdom? You repent and believe in Jesus. Okay? And so, let's start Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, big group, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples, small group, those that believe, came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, the disciples. He's teaching the disciples these things, assuming that they're already in the kingdom. But there's a large group on the, on the outskirts that are listening. 
And so the first beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about being poor in spirit is not just having this, you know, like I'm poor, but you are heartbroken over your sin. You, are, you realize you're nothing without Christ, that he is everything to you. And you've got to that point where you're at the end of your rope. You are nothing, absolutely nothing without Jesus. And you receive what? The kingdom of heaven. Linked to that is verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, mourn over their sin, mourn over the fact that they're broken in spirit, mourn over the fact that they are a sinner, mourn over the fact that they need Jesus, mourn over the fact that they can't save themselves, they shall be comforted. And we talked about how the role of the Holy Spirit primarily is to come as a comforter. Okay? So that's, that's last week's lesson in like 30 seconds. Okay? So if you missed it, you can go online and listen to last week's message. I think it's up on, on the internet, on the website or on iTunes. Okay. So, let's keep going through the Beatitudes. And remember, when Jesus says blessed, he's basically saying, you are a recipient of God's grace. Congratulations to you who have received God's grace. This is true of you because God has graced you. God has given you his grace. Blessed are those. So we could kind of say, the best way to translate blessed is Congratulations to you because you have God's grace. These things are true. It's an awesome privilege and it's an awesome um, place to be to have God's favor and God's grace and God's peace resting upon you as a result of, of salvation. And so these things are true of you. Okay? So let's talk about the third beatitude. Verse 5 Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I'm, am I missing my clicker? I must have left it back. (laughs) Where? No, 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 it's a little thing. Um, I think I must have left it back in the sound room. So hold that thought, blessed are the meek. You can read it on your sheet, but sometimes it's more fun to advance it with PowerPoint. I think I must have left it back here. Let's look. Yep, here it is. Okay, so. What does it mean to be meek? This is a term that we don't use a lot in our culture. When was the last time you had a discussion with somebody about meekness? We don't talk about being meek, do we? And so it's a, it's a foreign term that we're not really that familiar with. Now, meekness is not weakness. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean that people can walk all over you, that you're kind of just like a spineless jellyfish. And It's not a personality trait where you're just kind of this wimpy, spineless, little fly on the wall that doesn't cause any problems. That's not what meekness is. It's, it doesn't mean that you're just nice. That you can be a non-Christian and be nice. Remember, these are supernatural things that the Holy Spirit gives to us. So the Greek word there for meekness was often used of a domesticated animal like a horse who was powerful but submissive. The word means power under restraint. Now, some of you are horse people. And what happens when you go up and, um, you know, you know, horses are big animals, aren't they? And tame horses, Andrea, right? Tame horses are under control. You can take them by the bit. You can lead them. 
you, there, there, there's power under control. What happens if a horse goes crazy? It's not pretty. <laughs> they start kicking. Okay, so it's this whole idea that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has made you powerful through His Spirit, but you're under control. You're able to control that in a way that you are patient, you are long-suffering, you don't erupt easily, you're able to, um, to be humble and have this confident humility. Meekness means that we have a receptive heart before God. We accept His will for our lives with a quiet submission, meaning that a meek person says, whatever God's will is for my life, I'm going to accept it. I'm not going to fight God's will. I'm not going to try to earn my my right. I'm not going to try to fight for my rights. I'm not going to complain against God. I'm going to accept what he has for me with a quiet submission. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says what? For he, or for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, God in his sovereignty gives you your life and the situations in your life. And and humility says, you know what? I'm going to quietly submit myself to God's plan and I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to, um, to try to be angry. Meekness means that we act like we're nothing. We're, we're, we are not self-made people. We're God-made people. It's this whole idea that what I would say meekness is is this. The best way I can maybe explain it is this. You have a very keen understanding of God's sovereignty and you're okay with it. You're okay with it. You're okay with him being in control. You're okay with him calling the shots. And whatever happens in your life, and we'll see this this Sunday with Joseph, whatever happens in your life with trials and tribulations, you know that God's either allowing it or ordaining it or orchestrating it, however you want to say it, for your good and for his purposes, and you're just going to accept that as his grace to you. But it also comes then, not only in how we relate to God, but meekness comes in how we relate to other people. Okay? So if it's power under control and it's a humility, how do you think that translates into how we treat other people? Okay? Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Proverbs 16.32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then Ephesians says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So let's just throw out the idea that being meek means you're a doormat, that people can walk over you, that you're wimpy. It means really is that you, are, you have the Holy Spirit's power available to you, but you've chosen to resign yourself to be under control, to be submissive, to be kind and to be patient and to trust his sovereignty for your life and to treat other people in kind ways. Does that make sense? Meekness. Now, at this point, some of you are probably saying, that's not natural. 
That's not me. And I have to remind you, as in your flesh, that is not you. But as a person who's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can produce these in you. Because what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, let's just talk real briefly. I don't have notes for this, but I thought it'd be interesting to talk about. What is the, the thing that the meek get? They shall inherit the earth. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Right now, who inherit, right now, who's in charge of the earth if you just look at the world today? Satan, powerful people. The powerful people that want to money grab and, and, and grab um, a hold of things, it looks like, for all intents and purposes, the powerful people are in control right now. It looks that way. And in a sense, they may be in control, you know, in a worldly system, but only because God is allowing it. Is this promise a now or a not yet? Or a both? <laughs> it's future tense. They shall inherit the earth. The, the, full, the fullness of this is going to be when? In the new heavens and the new earth. When, God, when Christ comes back and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, the meek will inherit the earth. But I also think that you could look at it this way. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, in your meekness... When, when you humble yourself before the Lord, he may exalt you. And he may give you um, opportunities or positions or, or ways for you to have more influence in life. And it doesn't come through being greedy or pushing yourself to the front, but be through being meek. Which is, goes countercultural to what the culture says. What does the culture say? If you want to get ahead, what do you have to do? You fight for your rights. You climb the corporate ladder. You, it's a dog-eat-dog world. You've got to do all these things to fight for your rights. And then, then if you climb over everybody's back, you get to the top and you get to be the top dog. That's not the way a Christian should act. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have ambition. I mean, we're not saying you shouldn't have ambition if it's godly. It doesn't say you shouldn't have goals. It doesn't say that you shouldn't you know, try to strive for your best in whatever field God has placed you in. But it means that you resign yourself to God as sovereign. So he, you may never get to the point you want to get because God may not want you to get there. Or God may get you there. But you've said, God, you're in charge. Everything I have is from you. I'm going to humble myself before you and trust in your sovereignty. Okay? Blessed are the meek. All right, let's go on to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, we've got a word there. We've got a lot of words there. But what are Christians to hunger and thirst after? Righteousness. Okay, so we've got to stop and ask some questions. What type of righteousness is Jesus referring to? There are two types of righteousness in the Bible, okay? One is a, what I would call a positional righteousness, and one is what I'd call maybe a progressive. And let me explain that. The first, what we call positional or legal or imputed righteousness, this is the whole idea of justification by faith alone. It's the whole truth that once you trust Christ for salvation, God takes your sin and credits it to Jesus 
and takes Jesus' righteousness and credits to you so that God can look down upon your life now and you are in a position of being righteous or not guilty. It's your, it's your once and for all position based upon what Christ has done. It doesn't change. It's a, one, it's a once and for all done deal. Two passages of Scripture clearly illustrate this. Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified. It's a, it's a one-time event in our lives. That moment we trust Christ for salvation, He justifies us, and we are forever in a position of being righteous. We can't be more righteous or less righteous positionally because of the righteousness of Christ given to us. Okay, does that make sense? That's, that's one type of righteousness that the Bible talks about, a positional righteousness. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We also see from 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this whole idea that once you trust Christ for salvation, that's your position. It never changes. It's a done deal. You are forever, once and for all, seen, declared, legally righteous, not guilty, before God. It cannot change. It cannot fluctuate. It's a done deal. But there's a second kind of righteousness that the Bible talks about. We call this a progressive righteousness, where it is the inward transformational righteousness and where the Holy Spirit makes us more holy day by day. It's, it's, this is called sanctification. This is the whole idea that this is the whole idea that I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more obedient. I want, to be, I want to have less and less sin in my life. I want to be more progressively righteous. Now, this never changes. Remember, your position is always going to be, God's going to always see you as righteous in your position. That's not going to change. But let me just ask you a question. Are there times in your life when you're living more for Jesus and times when you're living less for Jesus? Are there times when you have more sin in your life and times when you have less sin in your life? Which righteousness is Jesus talking about hungering and thirsting for? You could probably make a case that he's talking about both, but I would probably argue that it's probably the second that he's talking about. Because hungering and thirsting is what? Something that fluctuates. Okay. How many of you guys were hungry today? What'd you do? You ate. You're going to get hungry tomorrow, right? What are you going to do? You're going to get satisfied. You're going to hunger and thirst. It's something that's this continual thing that you're hungering and thirsting for. So I think what Jesus is talking here is, I think it can be both, but I think that if he's talking to Christians, he's already talking to people who are positionally justified. And that's something that God has done for you. He's done it to you. He's done it for you. The whole hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I think, is that desire. Let's put it this way. It's that desire to want to be more holy and have less sin in your life. And sometimes you hit it, and sometimes you don't. But it's that desire, okay? It's this way. It's a hunger and thirsting and a desire to be free of all sin in our lives, and it's polluting effect, and to walk in holiness and to look more and more like Jesus. But notice the metaphor that is used there. Jesus says, blessed are those who do what? Hunger and 
thirst. What does this mean? Hunger and thirst. It's almost comical when we in America talk about being hungry and thirsty. Okay, Dave, we, Dave and I have been to India. Now, there's water bottles all over the place, thank, thank the Lord, Dave. But when we go into those villages, do they, what type of water comes out of those wells? Not the type, dirty, not the water you want to drink, okay? So we have the benefit of going down to Walmart and getting great value purified drinking water if you're cheap. Or you can get, you know, Dasani if you want to spend a little bit more. Or you can get the really cool drinking water, you know, like the Fufu stuff that has the sparks. Of, what is it called? Fiji or whatever. Or you can go to your tap, not here in Sterling, but you can go in other places to your tap and get water. Like Colorado Springs, okay? Like my parents live in Colorado Springs. I grew up in Colorado Springs. You can just drink water out of the tap in Colorado Springs because it's really good. Those of you that are from Colorado Springs, you know. Um, so we don't, know what it, we don't really know what it's like to be thirsty or hungry. How many of you have ever had real, like, hunger pains? Like, oh, I am so hungry. I haven't had a Big Mac in, like, two hours. You know, we're like, you know, none of us really understands it. But in that culture, think about the culture Jesus is talking to. It is a desert culture in the ancient Near East where water was scarce. They had Culligan men in those days, if you will, traveling water salesmen that would come to the village and they would sell water. And people would come out and buy water because it was so much of a commodity. So, these people understood what it meant to hunger and thirst. It, it was a painful thing. It was an angst. It was like, I desperately need this. It's not like, you know, I haven't had my M&M or my Snickers, you know. I, have, I haven't gone four hours. It's like, I desperately need this to the point that it's driving me to be painful. Okay, so if someone is truly hungry and thirsty, it's painful. There's a deep longing. There's desperation. There is a holy angst. And what's the holy angst? What's the desire for? Righteousness. That's the mark of a true Christian, that you painfully, longingly desire to be more holy. Now listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my Soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Who talks like that? When was the last time you had a conversation? I have real, I'm really panting for God right now. I am so thirsty for God. We don't talk like that, do we? The psalmist did. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. My, I'm fainting for you, God. I'm longing for you. I am desperate for you. And not just for you, but for you to give me righteousness. I mean, I, we have to stop and repent right now, I think. <laughs> At least I do after hearing this. Does that describe us? that deep longing to be more, satis- more, more holy. But notice what Jesus says. He's not going to leave you hungry or thirsty. You will be satisfied. In the original language, the word satisfied was used of fattening of animals. It really means to be stuffed like after Thanksgiving. If you truly want righteousness, 
God's going to give it to you. But notice the wording. They shall be satisfied. He could have said what? They shall satisfy themselves. They shall produce the righteousness themselves. No. Who gives us the righteousness? Jesus. We don't produce this righteousness. We don't fill ourselves. He alone gives it to us in His grace. You can't earn it or work for it or be good enough for it. You just have to be hungry for it, and then God in His grace will give it to you. Let's just stop. Let's slow down and enjoy these Beatitudes. Are there any questions after this point or observations or, or just things you need to stop and say, wow. Yes, Andrea. <laughs> a long time ago. That's a good illustration. And, I, and that, I thought, wow, that's what that we'll be satisfied when we realize that what we're trying for, what He has for us, will mm-hmm. satisfy us. Yeah. Let's talk about satisfaction for a moment. I know in my own personal life, we, at least me, I'll talk about me, I won't talk about you guys, <laughs> I'll talk about me. I am amazed at myself on what I think is going to satisfy me that comes from the world and not from Jesus. And it's a daily struggle and fight in my life every day to wake up and say, this day, I've got to find more satisfaction in Jesus than what all these things this world has to offer me. I mean, I can go in and work out, which is not wrong. I can go in and watch TV, which is not wrong. I can go fiddle around on my iPad and do Facebook, which is not wrong. I can go... Do, do whatever, even things that aren't necessarily wrong. And I can find great satisfaction in those. And, and again, that's not wrong. But the question is, how much time do I spend finding satisfaction in those things and not in Jesus? I think that's the danger for a lot of us as Christians. We, we tend to settle for something less than what Christ has for us because we're so easily amused. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. We're like children making mud pies in the slums when we don't realize right behind us there's this huge vacation spot out of the ocean. And, and so if we just turned over and saw, hey, we can go play in the beach in the ocean. No, we're going to sit here in, the, in a slum and make mud pies. And he says, we're far too easily amused. We, this is, we like doing that because we don't realize. And he's saying, Jesus is like the ocean. We, we need to go to him because he's going to satisfy so much more. Okay? All right, let's talk about merciful. And this one's a little difficult because if we're not careful, this can almost be like a, a condition for salvation. Like, for example... It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if you read that just by itself, out of context, it almost makes it sound like you're not going to receive mercy unless you're merciful. Or to take it a step further, you're not going to be saved unless you show some type of mercy to someone. Before we even look at what that says, can it mean that? Based upon the rest of the Bible. No, it can't. So we've got to figure out what it means. I think it involves two aspects merciful. One, it's an attitude or a sense of pity or kindness to others. And then secondly, I think it's also an action. So it's both an attitude and an action. I can feel mercy 
towards dawn, but not do anything about it. You see the difference? We can feel mercy all day long, but not actually have it translated into action. So I think it's, it's a feeling, an attitude, but it's also an action in how we, how we treat people. Blessed are the merciful. For example, listen to what John says in 1 John three seventeen. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see the need, you just walk on by. I think James says you see somebody hurting and, and say, go warm and be filled and just kind of go on with your life. You, you don't actually translate that into action. And so here's the thing about a merciful person. They don't gloat. He or she doesn't gossip. They don't rejoice when someone fails. They don't smugly get in your face and say, I told you so. You don't take revenge. A merciful person shows mercy ultimately because they've been the recipients of mercy. What's the gospel all about? Let's just stop and talk about what the gospel is all about. Actually, let me give you this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and then we'll talk about it. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, If I am not merciful, there's only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and mercy of God. I am outside Christ, I am yet in my sins, and I am unforgiven. I mean, he'd go on to say, you're still lost. If you don't understand mercy, if you're not a merciful person, then you're lost. Now, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones saying that, but I would say it this way. What's the gospel? The gospel says, we as sinners deserve hell, we deserve punishment, we deserve God's justice. Is it, are we all on the same page there? That's what we deserve. But God instead shows us incredible mercy. And because we've been recipients of mercy, how should we treat others? It's amazing to me sometimes how pig-headed and um, arrogant and um, holier than thou we as Christians can sometimes get. And we forget that, not that we excuse sin or say that somebody's doing something wrong and we don't confront it, but, but, but there's a merciful way to deal with, with issues. You can confront sin in a merciful way. I mean, Galatians 6.1 tells us that. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So I think this whole idea of being a merciful person. Now, there's a spiritual gift, I think, of mercy that some people have that others don't. Like, I don't have the spiritual gift of mercy. My wife does. And sometimes we get in arguments because I'm like, who cares? I'm just like, who cares? And she's like, and her heart's like pouring and crying and breaking over this situation. I'm like, just and not over her, but maybe over somebody else. I'm like, that person just needs to get over it and they just need to get, you know, I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm more like, just get over it and deal with it and move on and I don't really care. And sometimes I accuse Dawn of caring too much. And that's not fair to her because she's got the gift of mercy. She cares too much because God's put that in her. But I think if we're going to err on the side of caring, it better be on the side of caring too much than not caring enough. And having, and I'm sorry to pick on you, Don. Is that okay? <laughs> she's, like, <laughs> she's just nodding her head. And say, <clears throat> that's, she'll show me mercy. <laughs> no, she's, um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's this issue of, of an attitude and action. But then it says, they shall receive mercy. Now, this can, again, easily be misunderstood that, or misinterpreted that if you don't show mercy to people, then somehow you won't receive mercy and this will uh, affect your salvation. Um, like a cause and effect type thing, like karma. What goes around comes around. If you, if you keep stacking up mercy, 
you're going to get more mercy. If you don't show mercy, you better watch out because you may, may only get into heaven by the, by the hair of your chin. You know, you're not, you're not going to get in. First of all, who's Jesus' audience? Sermon on the Mount. He's not, addre- yeah, he's not addressing lost people. He's addressing believers. And we believe you can't lose your salvation. And also, this truth, if that were true, it nullifies that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is taught throughout the Bible. So what do you think Jesus is showing here? I don't know if I have the exact answer. I know what it doesn't mean, but I'm not sure I know what it means. <laughs> How's that as a cop-out? I know it doesn't have anything to do with our salvation in the sense that if we're not merciful, we're not going to get mercy. It's not a conditional thing. But my best stab is this. The more we show mercy to others and are kind and tender and back it up with action, the more we experience the joy of God's grace in our lives knowing that we're being obedient to Him. I think it's more of an experiential joy that we experience when we are merciful. So the more merciful we are to others, the more we experience the joy of our salvation. The more we are merciful to others, the more we show true evidence that we are truly saved. All right, let's look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in hearts. What does purity of heart mean? Do I? Oh, first of all, it means a heart that's undivided or united or whole. A person who has integrity, not hypocritical, and seeks to glorify Christ as supreme. Um, let me give you two psalms here that really talk about this whole idea of having a united heart. First is Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If I had cherished iniquity in my heart... The Lord would not have listened. Notice the word cherish. In Hebrew, it means to nurture like a mother. Like you nurture. If you nurture and, and, and milk and, and, give, and really nurse that sin in your heart, it really puts you in a position where you're not going to be able to hear from the Lord. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name unite my heart it's this whole idea of having a united heart pure in heart means that let me ask you guys a question and and, and sometimes those of you that are good at math can answer this faster than others so um, i wouldn't be able to answer this because i'm not good at math but let's look at the word those of you that are in math what's an integer i'm throwing it out there what's an integer anybody know what an integer is it's a what Okay. Anybody know what an integer? No, like we're not, none of us are good at math. Somebody look it up on their iPhone real quick. Yeah, it, it really means it's a whole number. It's a whole number. Okay, a whole number. What is, what does it mean to integrate? What does it mean to integrate? Okay, to combine, to bring together. Can you say to make, to make a bunch of pieces come together as a whole? Okay. Integer, integrate, integer, integrate. What other word comes from this root family? 
Integrity. What is integrity? All the pieces of your life come together and you are whole. You are united, meaning that you don't play a different role one place and have a different life somewhere else. The totality of your life, every aspect of your life, your social life, your public life, your private life, everything is unified to glorify God as a whole. Does that make sense? Or is that confusing you? Okay, so when, when, when the psalmist says, unite my heart to fear your name, what he's really saying is, I want, to be a whole, I want my heart to be whole. I want every part of my being, my heart. Now let's just stop and talk about heart. When we talk about the heart, are we talking about the muscle that pumps blood in your chest? When, when the, especially the Hebrews, when they talked about the heart, it was the, not just the seat of your emotions, but it was everything about you. Your mind, your will, your affections, the, the control center of your, of your whole life. So the heart was everything that you are. And so to have a united heart really means to have a pure heart, to have a, a heart of integrity, a heart that's, that's um, whole, a heart that all, all's working together to glorify God. Okay, so it's a united heart. But... There's a second aspect of purity, which is the one we're used to, and that is we don't want polluted hearts. What's the opposite of pure? Polluted or dirty or stained. We don't want to have polluted hearts, hearts that are white, hearts that are pure. Now, when you become a Christian, your heart gets pure, right? Positionally. But what happens day by day when you begin to sin? Your heart gets polluted. You, you tend to get you know, more, more dirty, I guess, is the word. And so the question then becomes, how do I get a pure heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. How do I keep my heart pure? How do I keep my heart from getting stained by the world? Well, there's two ways the Scripture says. One is Psalm 119, 9-10. How can a young man or young woman or old man or old woman keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I mean, that's the most basic answer. If, there's nothing mystical or magical or confusing about this at all. What's the answer? If you want a pure heart, consistently read the word and obey what you read. I mean, that's what he's saying there. Guard your heart according to your word. Let me not wander from your commandments. And so if you, the, the more you're in the Word, the more you're reading the Word, the more you're studying the Word, the more you're obeying the Word, the, the higher probability you're going to have a pure heart. And it's just that, I want to say that easy. It, it's just the way that God set it up. But also, I think it's appropriate to pray for it as well, as, as David does in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within, within me. Create in me. What does that, what does that sound like? That's an interesting word, create in me a clean heart. Do we create the heart? The word that David uses there, create, is, is only used of God in the Old Testament. It was the word used when God created the universe. It's asking God to do this work of cleansing in our lives. So we want to have an undivided heart, 
We want to have a whole heart. We want to have a pure heart, an unpolluted heart. And the Bible is very clear. It says if you want that to happen, ask God to give it to you and spend time in his word and obey. We've made it more difficult than it probably is. The problem is we don't want to read his word and obey. But look at what the promise is. What's the promise? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. Now, that's, that's an interesting statement. They will see God. Literally? What? Someday, was Moses allowed to see God? No. 1 Timothy 6, and I could show you a lot of other verses, um, 6, 15 through 16. He who's the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or ever, or whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, when Jesse Duplantis or some other televangelist says he was shaving and he got transported up into heaven and you know he had to give Jesus directions in heaven because Jesus didn't know where he was going and he was... Jesus was over there crying because, and Jesse Duplantis goes over and puts his arm around Jesus and, and comforts Jesus because Jesus is crying. And he asks him, why are you crying? Because they're not believing in me. Go back and tell everybody to believe in me. And I'm coming back. And, and Jesse Duplantis goes back and writes a book and talks about his close encounters of the God kind. Is that what we're talking about? So you're like, whoa. Okay. He's either making it up or he's making it up. Okay, so... This is not physically somehow seeing God in like some vision. This is a metaphor for the whole idea of spiritual closeness or intimacy that comes. It's this whole idea that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So let's just talk about this. This is very important in the Christian life. If you want more of God, it's contingent upon your purity. If you want to really seek God and know God and get close to God, if you're living an impure life, are you going to be able to do that as well? Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will what? See the Lord. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I've set the Lord always before me. Does that mean that like he puts a little idol up of Jesus and he keeps looking at it? I've set the Lord, I've set the Lord before me. In other words, it's this whole idea that I am focusing my gaze. I'm going to sneeze here a bit. Excuse me. Um, it's, the, it's the corn. Um, there's something out there. This time of year, I haven't taken my Claritin today. Um, I only take Claritin when I preach, so I don't sneeze. I don't mind sneezing on other days. When but um, <laughs> so when you set, what's well, this annoying for you guys? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be addicted to Claritin is what I'm saying. I don't like prescription drugs, so I take Claritin as a little. Why am I talking about Claritin? Let's get back to always setting the Lord before me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And there's also the now and not yet. What does Jesus promise us one day? We shall see him face to face as he is because we have been purified. But I think in the now, if you really want that intimacy, that closeness, that understanding of God's will, that 
that um, just that sense of, of closeness with Christ, it's contingent upon purity. Um, I'm reading a biography right now of Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish preacher in the 1800s that died at the age of 29. And one of his goals was to be as holy as a sinner can be, this side of heaven. That's kind of what his, his goal was. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting concept to think about. So, blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, let's keep moving here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, he moves to peacemakers. So what exactly is a peacemaker? Well, I think it's a character issue first. It's an attitude. It's a character thing. A peacemaker by his, his or her very nature as a Christian is peaceable, spirit-controlled person who displays meekness out of a pure heart. You see how these kind of relate? Peacemakers related to meekness is related to pure in heart, is related to hungering and thirsting for right. I think that, that if you just sit back and look at the Beatitudes, you can either look at how they build upon each other or you can look about how they flow into each other. I think you can see both of those there. They, they all kind of build or they all relate to one another. It's this whole idea that you are controlled by the Holy Spirit in such a, in such a way that you are a peaceable person. Proverbs 13.10, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but those who take advice is wisdom. Anybody want to take a stab at what insolence is? It's stubbornness. Somebody, somebody get their iPhone and like do dictionary.com, look it up. No, I'm just joking. It, it, I, insolence, it's in pride and prejudice. Is what somebody's, insolence means this, it is a persistent stubbornness and sense of wanting to push your rights on people because you think that you deserve it. It's this whole, you, you don't take correction. You don't want anybody telling you what to do. You are obstinate and you are um, haughty. Strong-willed. Is that what it says? Strong-willed? Yes. I, I knew you knew that, Don. <laughs> Ephesians, we've already looked at this one. Oh, no, we haven't looked at this one. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this may sound weird when I say it, but think about it. To truly be a peacemaker, you have to be free from self. A peacemaker has been given a new heart by God and is delivered from self-interest, self-pleasure, and self-focus. You are at peace with who God has made you to be. You're not, and it goes kind of back to meekness too. You're not trying to promote yourself. You think outside yourself. Okay, but it's also an action too. It's, it's also a desire to actually make peace. You're a peaceable person, but you also have the desire, blessed are the peacemakers, you want to make peace. You, number one, you want to, you're, you're concerned with evangelism in the sense that you want people to be at peace with God, but I think in the Christian life, you don't like conflict. And if there's conflict, if there is um, people that are at odds, if there's disunity, a Christian comes in and says, let's, let's work for peace here. Let's, let's try to bring things together. So, you know, Psalm 34, 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Hunt it down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, be at peace among 
yourselves. Romans 12, 18, I don't think it's on your sheet, but it's on mine. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, it's interesting. What's the promise here? You will be called, what? Sons of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? This is the only title given in the Beatitudes. A son or daughter of God. Literally, we're owned by God. To be a son back in that culture meant what? You were adopted into God's family, and you were given rights and privileges to be part of that family. And so being a son of God is a title of privilege where God says, I have adopted you into my family, you are owned by me, and because of that, you have been graced, you've got the kingdom, you are my treasured possession. And so what? it's kind of like this, like father, like daughter, like father, like son. Out of the fact that we've been adopted by God as a children, we begin to act more and more like our father. A son of God, a son acts like their father. So a Christian begins to act more and more like their father, more and more like God. Okay, up to this point... We like the Beatitudes. They're, they're kind of, I, want, I don't want to say warm and fuzzy, because they're not, but they're, they, they make us, I mean, we can resonate with them. Man, I want that purity in heart. I want that righteousness. Man, I want that. I, I really want to mourn over my sin. Yeah, I really want to be a peacemaker. I mean, all these things we can look at. And then Jesus drops a bomb and just adds this as the last one. And, and you're like, what, Jesus? Why did you have to add this one? You guys ready? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the persecuted. And we're like, we don't, we don't like this. But why are they persecuted? What exactly is the root cause of persecution? It's not just persecution for a generic reason. What does Read it carefully. Read verse 10 carefully. Why are we to be persecuted? For righteousness' sake. On Jesus' account. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now one thing I want to show you guys as we go through the Beatitudes and we go through the Sermon on the Mount, there is a key word that shows up. Righteousness. We'll get to that as we go through it, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about righteousness, 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 righteousness. And all of a sudden, in the very center of the sermon, he talks about asking and seeking and knocking for it. And I'm going to leave you hang on there. What's the it that he's asking us to seek for? We'll get to that. But right here, it's righteousness for, I mean, it's persecution for righteousness' sake. Now, let's, let's just look. This is the last of the Beatitudes. There's a reason it's last. Let's just look 
at the result of living out the Beatitudes in a consistent manner. If you're truly displaying all of these things that Jesus says are yours because you are in the kingdom, how is it going to impact those around you? What's going to be the result of other, the way others treat you when you display the Beatitudes? Okay, let's think about it for a moment. When we talk about poverty of spirit, and when we warn people that they are sinners in desperate need of salvation, and that we, without Christ we are spiritually bankrupt, what do we do? We end up offending the prideful. When you talk about sin and spiritual bankruptcy and the need for Christ and, and just the basic thing that a person needs to understand for the gospel, you run the risk of what? Offending someone. Are we, let me just stop and preach for a minute. Are we allowed to talk about sin anymore in our culture? Unless you're a sports figure and then everybody talks about what you did was wrong. Well, if, you're, if you whip your child, if you, if, you, if you abuse your child with sticks, that, you know, that's wrong. If you beat up your girlfriend in an elevator, that's wrong. But if you go have sex with all these women and you go, you know, do, do drugs or whatever, whatever a person does in their private life, that's okay. We pick and choose what we call wrong, and everybody gets on the bandwagon in our culture of what's wrong, but then anytime you come out and say, let's just be consistent. We were talking about this in our men's study the other day, weren't we, guys? Christianity is the only belief system that's consistent. And when you're consistent, what does it mean to be consistent? You call sin out no matter where sin is, consistently. And when you begin to do that, what happens? People don't like to be told that they are a sinner. It's okay for somebody else. We'll call Ray Rice a sinner. We'll call Adrian Peterson a sinner. We'll call other people sinner, but don't ever get in my face and tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. That offends me. And so you will be persecuted if you start talking about poverty of spirit. When you start talking about what it means to truly be poor in spirit, that when you think about how offensive the message of the, of the cross is, you go to a person that doesn't know Jesus and you go to them and you say, and kindly, you don't get in their face and, and yell at them, but you say, you know, listen, can I, can I beg with you? Can I plead with you? You are dead spiritually you are under god's wrath you are hellbound and if you don't repent and believe you're going to spend eternity in hell because your sins have separated you from god your sins offend a holy god are they going to receive that only unless the holy spirit's working on their heart but that's an offensive message but that's the first step to understanding what it means to be a christian let's think about the other one we talk about mourning over sin and talking about repentance and grieving over rebelling against God and saying that we're accountable to our sovereign creator, then we offend those who are happy in their sin. They don't want to be around people that are talking about accountability and grieving and repenting. We talk about being meek and showing power under restraint and acting like we're nothing and not greedily asserting our rights. We offend those who want to push for their rights. When we talk about hungering and thirsting and painting, should be panting for righteousness and being more like Jesus and panting for him as a deer pants for water, we again are exposing those who are living in unrighteousness and those who are hungry and thirsting for the things of this world, and they in turn will persecute us. When we talk about being merciful, gentle, humble, seeking to alleviate suffering through Christ-like compassion, we offend those who want it all, who are cruel, who are merciless. We talk about being pure at heart and we talk about having a united heart for Christ and wanting to be a person of integrity and desiring to walk in holiness. We offend those who have ugly hearts. We talk about peacemakers and we talk about the dire need for sinners who are at war with God to be at peace with Him and for people to get along and live in unity. We offend those who want division. 
And so it's natural that when you begin to live out the Beatitudes, you are a prime target for people to hate you. Now, does that encourage your hearts, or does that make you kind of, I don't know if I want to live this way. But notice what Jesus says. It is a blessing to be persecuted. 1 Corinthians, whoops, 4, 12-13. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Why is it a joy to be persecuted? Doesn't make sense, does it? But there are three passages of Scripture that reiterate that. Romans 5 Three through five, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our suffering. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of every various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you face trials. Rejoice in suffering. First Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in trials and persecution and tribulation and suffering. Is that the message that the Christian world is propagating today. If you were to turn on Christian television, you were to go into a Christian bookstore, or you were to surf Christian internet, whatever that is, what is the predominant message that's coming from the popular Christian preachers? Does it have to do anything with helping you understand that there's, number one, suffering in the world? What do they tell you? Do you know what their theology is? I'm going to take a diversion here, okay? Because we've got time. Don't ever give a, I'm, I'm almost done with my notes, so we're going to go on a tangent, okay? The health, wealth, prosperity, word, faith, false gospel that's out there comes from a very sinister theological presupposition that they have. It's called, this is not in your notes, obviously, this is called the little God theory. And let me tell you who espouses this. Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, um, you know, Jan and Paul Crouch, all, all the TBN crowd. What they say is that when God created man in his image, when we're created in the image of God, it's not that we're image bearers, but that we are, in a sense, little gods ourselves. And you can go on and hear them quote it. They'll, they'll say, we are little gods. God, created, God reproduced after his own kind. We are gods. We're not God, but we are gods. They'll use that terminology. They're not afraid to use that terminology. Anybody have a problem with that? Okay, okay. If you are a little god... Theologically, 
Does it make sense for a God to be sick? Does it make sense for a God to be poor? And does it make sense for a God to suffer? If you're a God, then that means you shouldn't be sick, you shouldn't be poor, you shouldn't suffer, right? Because you're a God. And gods don't do that. So, what you can do is, you can create a better reality for your future through the power of your own words. That's why it's called the Word of Faith Movement. So you create wealth, you create health, you create a lack of suffering by your words. You can call words into existence. You can call things into being because you're a little God. I was watching something the other day that shocked me. Two things. One guy said, God is powerless to answer prayer until we give him permission, and the way we give God permission is when we pray. God can't do anything. And he said this, God has the power, but he doesn't have the right. We hold the right to tell God how to operate. The other guy said, God can kill me, but he won't. And God may kill me, but he can't. God can't kill me because I have the power of life and death in my tongue, and I control when I go and when I live. God doesn't have that control over me. These are top televangelists that are saying these things. And it stems from this little God's theology that if you're a little God, you shouldn't be sick, poor, or suffer, and the power is in your word. So what do you do? You speak things into existence. You create faith. And here's what you do. You figured out the pyramid scheme. If you get desperate people who are sick and who are poor and who are suffering, especially widows, and you pray upon them to, how are they going to get this way? Well, you just confess it. Well, there's no, there's no payoff for confessing it. That helps you, but the real way for you to get out of your sickness and out of your poverty and out of your suffering, you've got to sow a seed. So you sow your seed into my ministry. And you go to that phone right now. Go to that phone right now. Go to the phone right now. The Holy Spirit's prompting you. Go to the phone right now. There's somebody out there. Go to the phone right now. Oh, the Lord's telling me there, there, there's a way. Go to the phone right now. Why do they keep saying go to the phone right now? Because if you wait any longer, you're going to think about it and you won't go to your phone. So they've got to create this urgency in you that you somehow need to go to the phone. And what do you do? You sow your seed. So you give your money back to the little God and he keeps getting richer and richer. And you keep sowing your seed and you may still be sick and you may still be poor and you may still suffer. And then you get mad and say, well, what's going on? I sowed my seed. I'm having faith. I'm, I'm giving my money to so-and-so's ministry. And then you, you email so-and-so's ministry and you say, I've, I've sowed my seed in your ministry and, and I'm really doing positive confessions. And he will turn it back on you and say, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. I'm off the hook. Just keep sending your money. It's your fault because you don't have enough faith. And then the cycle keeps going on and on again until eventually these little gods who are at the top of the pyramid scheme are actually abusing the poor, the suffering, and the sick, getting richer and richer. And these people are getting more and more depressed and hoping upon hope that somehow they'll get out of their situation. Yes.
Yes, a, gospel to them a false that gospel is based off of this, and that is where I feel such an urgency to be supporting missions because we need to send people. I will have the true gospel because there are people like I w- that going. Yes, are getting people involved, and that bothers me because. <laughs> It should bother all of us. And there's, there's two things that are happening. One, it is massively proliferating in Africa. You talk to pastors in Africa that, that are like normal believing, they will say that it is taken Africa by storm. And really what they've done is they've taken their witch doctor culture and just kind of made it Christianized. It's the same philosophy. Our missionary in India, we've had a lot of conversations about this. He sees it all the time where he's at. There was a guy that came out and he had to, he had to, he had to correct his son because there's this, um, I don't know if David, you, you ever heard the story about, in Araku, I probably shouldn't say this on the, I'll cut that out. In the villages, at the church, they invited this evangelist to come in, and he was dressed just like Benny Hinn. He looked, exa- I mean, and he did the, bl- he blew his coat on everything, and he was blowing on people, and he was saying fire and fire. And our missionary son was like eight or nine, he just, like, never seen anything like this. He started laughing. He was just, like, laughing, like, uncontrolled, like, just thought this was hilarious, and just like, this guy's a fake and a phone, like a seven-year-old. And um, so the missionary pulled him aside and said, you know, we need to respect those that come in and preach, and we shouldn't laugh at him. The guy's totally whack, but don't laugh at him. And so he corrected his son, but he went, our missionary went to the guy and said, what, what are you doing? I mean, is this for real, or what? Why are you trying to do this? And, and the guy didn't really have an answer. He said, well, I, he said, touch not the Lord's anointed. I'm anointed of God, and you have no right to question what I'm doing. And that's the answer they'll give. If you question anything they're doing, they will say, I'm anointed. I've got the special anointing. God has given me this vision. God has given me this. Who are you to say that what I'm doing is wrong? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, let, let me just say that for the, for the, for the tape or for the, the audio recording. The Mormons don't go into unreached people groups like we do to do evangelism because it's too hard. They wait for churches to be established from missionaries that have done the work, and then they go and pray upon those that are already believers and take out of the established church. Yeah, I mean, that's the way they, they do it here. So, if you do not have, let's get back to the topic, I don't know how I got up. If you do not have a theology of suffering or persecution that is biblical, then your faith is on shaky ground because the first time something bad happens to you, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to get bitter against that teacher that told you that you could have your best life now and now you're not. Number two, you're going to get bitter against God. 
And number three, you're just going to be in an endless cycle of trying to get out of it by going more and more into debt to these people. And all three of those are not healthy. And shame on these leaders who they know exactly what they're doing. It's calculated and planned. And I will say this, it's satanic to, to, to abuse people this, this way. Um, so Jesus says, expect it. Um, Romans 8, notice what he says. It, again, what's the final blessing? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Go back and look at the first beatitude, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a bookend. The first beatitude and the last beatitude have the same promise. Repeated twice. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ultimate reward is heaven. Right now and in the future. The kingdom of God right now and in the future. But ultimately, if you're being persecuted right now, what's your ultimate hope? We don't understand this, but let's say you're living in a persecuted nation or you're living under the iron fist of of persecution. What's your ultimate hope? God may never get you out of that. And that regime may never change. And you may be persecuted and you may be martyred. Your hope, is not, your hope is not to somehow get out of that. Your hope is heaven. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing For us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So I would say this, all the Beatitudes hinge on this future gaze to our reward in heaven where we long for our true home. And what did Paul say in Philippians 1.21? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay. That's where we're going to stop tonight. And you may get out just a little bit early, but I want to see if there's any questions or any tangents. You know, you, 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 get, you want to get your money's worth tonight, so if you want to ask some more questions and go on more tangents, we, we've got about 15 minutes to spare. And if you don't want to get your money's worth, you can be dismissed, and I may come around with a video camera. No, I'm just joking. Like I did last week. No, no. So, yeah, keep teaching. Um, so, anybody have any questions or things, they want, clarifications or issues? Let me recommend a video to you guys that was, I, I posted it on my Facebook, but you can go on YouTube. Um, it, it's by, it, it's, um, let me just pull it up here on YouTube. It's by a guy named Justin Peters. Justin Peters is a, he's, in, he's got cerebral palsy. And he's in a wheelchair. And before he was a Christian, he thought he was a Christian, and he went to a bunch of Benny Hinn crusades all over the country trying to get healed. It never did. And eventually God kind of opened his eyes to what was going on. And now he tries to expose the the falseness in this movement and um he's got this was at the john MacArthur strange fire conference there's a lot of controversy about the strange fire conference so you take it there, there was some controversy with the strange fire conference i i've watched a lot of this stuff and I, I think for the most part it was helpful there's some things i disagreed with but the, his the thing i liked about his was justin peters go under strange fire um 
I think it's called the deception of the, the word faith movement, but just type in YouTube, Justin Peters, Strange, Strange Fire Conference. Um, the thing I like about him, his, is that he deals with source material. So he'll say, okay, here's the theology of the word faith movement, and here's examples, and he'll just put the video clip up and have it come out of a guy's own mouth. And these are like pop, the popular, he takes the most popular TBN TV preachers that are on and has it just come out of their own mouth. So he doesn't really have to say anything. It's about an hour long, but it is very enlightening. Um, some of these, what some of these people would say. Joseph Prince and Joel Osteen were together. And they were asked the question, you guys don't like to talk about sin, do you? You guys don't like to talk about repentance, do you? That was the accusation. Joseph Prince says, let me tell you, he's the Korean guy, let me tell you that we do talk about repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means to change your mind. True, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It does mean to change your mind. But notice what he says next. He says this, when we teach people to think positively and to have their best life now, they are changing their mind about reality and in a sense they're always repenting so we're teaching repentance when we teach people to change their mind about does that make sense they're they're saying they're justifying it doesn't make sense they're basically saying oh yeah we teach repentance but how do they define repentance is it turning from sin and turning to christ or is it i'm just changing my mind about these life principles and 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 and, you know so a non-christian can repent as long as they just kind of embrace their principles so there's a lot of seduction and, and slipperiness stuff in there. Mm-hmm. about that child and talked about how she had to leave her church because they, you know, didn't, uh, didn't sure. support her, but she found a church that did support her. But the deception in it, and I mean, mm-hmm. and this is a magazine that's going to be read by mm-hmm. thousands of women. Yeah. And just that whole leaving of, once again, I'm not going to submit myself to the authority of Scripture. Yeah. I'm going to go with what makes me feel better. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to when you, when you ask them, like they've embraced, a, they've embraced a lifestyle that's not godly. Whether it's living together, whether it's homicide, whatever. And what they'll say is, once I came to grips with this and prayed about it, I just had this overwhelming sense of peace and I've actually grown closer to God through this. Have you heard stuff like that? You know, I, I have, you know, I, 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 know, of a, I know of a woman who is a lesbian, who was not before, but 
is now a lesbian for many years. Um, and she said, now that she's become a lesbian, she feels closer to God than she ever did before. And that she's free to be herself and that she's grown closer to God through that. Um, so, it's... When you base truth... Or when you base things on experience over truth, you're always going to be in dangerous waters. Now, I'm not against experience because we experience God in powerful ways, but if all you base your life on is experience, then what you're doing is you're going from experience to experience and whatever makes you feel good. Do you always have to have a peace? Just because you have a peace about something, does that mean it's right? Sometimes in Christian world, we just think, I have a peace. There may be some times where God is calling you to do something very difficult, or sometimes you may not have a peace about witnessing, or I may not have a peace about this, or God doesn't necessarily say you always have to have a peace in order for you to do his will. God doesn't have to give you a peace. He's given you his word. So, anyway. Larry, were you going to say something? Oh, I thought I saw you. You moved. Moving your hand. All right, any other, any other questions or comments or snide remarks? Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the whole thing. And, and if you go watch that Justin Peters video, and, and if you follow me on Facebook, you can go back, I posted it. Um, he talks about the history of this movement and it doesn't come out of the charismatic movement. It comes out of what was big in the late 1800s called the New Thought, which was more of a metaphysical, hypnotic type, power positive thinking movement. And so that's where a lot of it comes from is that whole power of positive thinking, positive confessions, positive thoughts. And it traces all the way back to some individuals in the late 1800s and, it, and it's kind of morphed. Another thing that's interesting is called Kundalini. Kundalini is um, the pagan worship in India in some places where they do a lot of the being slain in the spirit, jerking, um, doing a lot of weird manifestations. And the, if you go type in Kundalini, um, like on YouTube, you can see like this one guy who is charismatic, who does believe in speaking in tongues and a lot of the gifts, but he's very concerned about this. He showed some of the modern day movements next to Kundalini that's pagan. They look exactly the same. One guy talks about how he gets drunk on the Holy, Holy Ghost. He's, a Holy, he's the Holy Ghost bartender and he, he, he tokes the ghost. And um, he's really weird. The thing about it is, and Don was talking about this the other day, some of you are just laughing. Yeah, the thing about it is we laugh. But the point is millions of people are buying this stuff. And Don and I were talking about, how, how are people buying this stuff? Don't you see that it's false, it's hokey, it's weird, it's wacky? It's, and my only answer is that there's a, there's a delusion being pulled over their eyes where they are not seeing truth. Or they're so experiential that they're willing to go past that because they want that deep experience. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. They, they do not practice expository preaching. 
I don't really call what they do preaching. They stand up and they rant and rave, but they never actually open a text and go through and say what the text means. Have you ever watched a television preacher? Do they ever actually, they may open their Bible and refer to a verse once, but they, don't, they never actually well, go back through it. The wacky ones? Free-flowing. I saw a disturbing thing. I saw a disturbing thing the other day, too. There's this church in Redding, California called Bethel Church, and it's where a lot of this stuff's coming out, and they were having a fire circle. You may ask, what's a fire circle? Would you want your youth, teenager, going to a... Here's what they, sh- they showed the fire circle. It's a bunch of teenagers in a youth room writhing on the floor, touching each other and laughing hysterically, mixed gender, totally uncontrollable, trying to get more of the Holy Spirit. And that was the fire circle. Would you want that even if the Holy Spirit wasn't? I mean, would you, I mean, would you want to mix genders on the floor, writhing around? I mean, you walk in there like, that's not even, that's not godly even. I mean, it's just... Yeah, not even the pagans do that. And supposedly these kids are supposed to be in this fire circle to get their, to get their, their whatever. They're fire. So, anyway. All right. I've kind of scared you guys enough. And so, um, yes, Julie. So, this goes back to the whole college thing and trying to impress your child. Yeah, yeah. Most people know that we had a child that a professor recommended a book, and through that, she ended up walking away from God. So, it's kind of on the same lines. But, we now have a phrase, and Jared's back. Oh, amen. Amen. Well, we've been praying for that for since you guys have come to the church. Yeah, we, that's uh, it's amazing. Well, and that's a great testimony, Julie, to say, number one, the power of prayer, persistent praying, and number two, that no matter what a person is steeped in, they're not too deep that God can't grab them out of it, and God can do that. Fitzpatrick. Yeah, at least Fitzpatrick was on Pat. 
and they were on TBN last night. Yeah, I watched the. The Crouch, yeah, it's Jan, Jan Crouch's, yeah, it's Paul and Jan Crouch's son. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, I, I somewhat struggle. I, I have, I don't know what to think about that because, like Ed Stetzer and Kirk Cameron, guys that are solid go on TBN, and so their philosophy is. I'm going to go into the cesspool of wackiness to bring some sanity. Okay, and so that's their thought process. The other thought process that is, is like, the other side of me says, why would you want to have anything to do with that? The fact that you're going on that is leading credence to it. Just stay as far away as you can from it. I think it's a personal decision that each leader needs to make. Um, And so... You know, when I saw Tullian and Elise Fitzpatrick, I saw that at lunch today because I follow him on Twitter and I watched a little bit. I'm like, wow, they're on TBN. That was pretty shocking. I'm like, that, that's kind of shocking. Well, I heard Steve Brown in years. I used to listen to him yeah. sometimes out of Texas, but I hadn't yeah. heard it. Yeah. He's just as edgy. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, the gospel went forward. Yeah. And I. Well, and I guess you have to look at it and say, if I truly believe me being on there is going to be an influence to try to move them towards solid theology. I mean, what praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's their big TV show, isn't it? Um, but if um, I would say praise the Lord, if TBN repents and throws off all of their wacky people and actually gets solid, that would be like a, that would be like a true miracle. Not the false miracles, that, but like a true miracle. Yeah. So, but anyway, all right. Well, let me pray for us and then we will, unless there's any other comments so praise the lord julie i'm i'm thankful i'm glad you shared that with us because we've been praying for you guys for a long time so so amen father first of all we just praise you for um what you've done in in julie's and and dave's um, son lord that's just a a praise we've been praying for for many years and lord we just thank you that you have moved repentance into his heart and lord for premarital counseling and lord we just pray that he and his fiance just have a solid future together with you as the leader of their life, Lord. We're thankful for that. Lord, help us to be discerning. Lord, we don't want to be so nitpicky that, we're, that, we're, that we become legalistic, but Lord, we also want to be discerning so that we can understand truth from error. And, and the way to do that is to be in our words. Lord, help us to, to hunger and thirst for your word, hunger and thirst for righteousness, to, to truly just seek your face, Lord, and um, help us to be ready for whatever comes our way, Lord. If persecution comes our way, help us to be ready for that in all things that you may be glorified. And you promise to be with us. You promise us that ours is the kingdom of heaven. And so if we've got the kingdom of heaven, what else do we need? That's our true home. And so for us to live as Christ, to die is gain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.